Well, today I am excited to introduce our guest speaker, someone I've known for a very, very long time. In fact, he was there uh, when I was born, and th that would be weird, except for that he's my dad, Pastor Paul. Actually, he's been pastoring here almost as long as that, um, you know, over a quarter of a century. So uh, we are excited to have him share. I'm excited. He's taught me a lot, obviously. So would you welcome Pastor Paul? Thanks, man. Wow. That was quite an introduction. I don't think I've had an introduction quite like that up to this point. I was going to come up here and say, who is that fine young man doing announcements so eloquently? Well, Pastor Kevin, emergency appendectomy. Who'd have thought, you know, but that's, you know, didn't take God by surprise, right? It's not an emergency. I actually carved out a little time for me to come up here this morning and share a little message that uh, I've been working on, uh, studying for a while. So was wondering when I was going to have this opportunity. So here we go. We need to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We're going to take a little break from our Genesis study, although we are going to still talk about um, some creation things. I want to paint you a little picture uh, before we dive into Luke chapter 12. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So if you can picture a beautiful sunny day, we've had a few of those, beautiful sunny day on a grassy hillside out there overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been there. And uh, beautiful day, the, the flowers are blooming, the birds are singing, and Jesus is there speaking with his disciples, but surrounding them is a great crowd of people. They are the, uh, they're, they're just the common people, the, the local villagers, the village people, I guess you could call them, who have come, they're the, you know, they're the poor fishermen, um, peasants, uh, farmers. They've come and they've surrounded, wanting to hear more about what Jesus has to say. So Jesus is really talking to his disciples, um, and a man comes along out of the crowd, and he interrupts. He interrupts uh, what Jesus is saying. The crowd is listening in, and he's insisting that Jesus act on his behalf. He's, he's, and by doing so, he introdu introduces a whole different subject matter. And Jesus is taking, going to take this opportunity and address the crowd, as we'll see. So let's pick it up in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. It says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Then he spoke a parable to them and said, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. 
then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Can we pray? Lord, as we are looking into your word, as we are listening once again to these, uh, these words that you spoke uh, to your disciples, to the crowd that day there uh, by the Sea of Galilee, Lord, open our hearts to hear what your Spirit is saying. Very important message uh, for us today as we deal with the same types of heart issues uh, that those people were dealing with. Lord, we want to hear what you have to say. We know that you want to provide the truth that sets us free from these things to live an abundant life that you came to give us in the kingdom of God. So bless our time in your word. Break it fresh on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is addressing some very important, serious subjects here in the chapter of Luke. These, again, are matters of the heart, common struggles for us all. He's talking about greed. He's talking about covetousness. He's going to go on to talk about worry and anxiety, motivations that can drive our lives. But again, his desire is to set us free, free for an abundant, fruitful life. So going back to verse 13, we, we pick it up at the interruption when the guy comes along and interrupts Jesus with a statement that turns the conversation. The man says, Jesus, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Give me my half. In other words, I want my fair share. I want what I'm entitled to. Intervene and make, make sure I don't get cheated, Jesus. So here's a man telling Jesus to intervene. And so, you know, I'm not sure it's ever a, a good way to, you know, attitude of prayer, asking the Lord to, you know, Jesus. He's just, you know, telling Jesus what he, what he wants. There's something that rises up in people's hearts when there's an inheritance to be had, isn't there? It's, you know, it's interesting. Many of you have been through that process. And then there's relatives that come out of nowhere that when there's an inheritance to be had. But anyway, this man's interruption, it turns the conversation. It turns the conversation to money and possessions. And remember, the crowd now is listening in. And Jesus, the master teacher who knows the subject matter has been changed, he takes full opportunity, advantage of the opportunity, without allowing the man to hijack the conversation. Jesus, knowing his motivation, because Jesus always sees the heart, he just says to the man, Sir, who made me arbitrator between you and your affairs? It's a valid question. Who made me that? So the man's request basically was, was denied because what was needed was not God's intervention and Jesus' intervention, but repentance of a heart attitude, a heart attitude of greed and covetousness. It reminded me of the warning that James gives to those who heart, whose hearts are not in the right place when they pray and when they're asking God with selfish motives. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So again, Jesus understood the man's interruption, switched the focus 
to money and possessions. And with the crowd listening in, he turns to the crowd and he says, look out for every form of greed. Beware of covetousness. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. I think we should camp on that verse for just a second. That is an important truth. It's a truth that has huge implications for how we see the stuff in this world and how we see ourselves. Our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. In other words, what you are is not what you own. What you are is not what you own. What you possess does not add anything to who you are. What you possess does not add to your identity as a child of God or your worth in the sight of God. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Jesus is talking about eternal life. He's talking about the abundant life that he came to give us in the kingdom of God. It does not involve striving to attain more money, more possessions. It's not about acquiring more things, but it's about righteousness, about peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, and bearing fruit that lasts as we're serving the Lord. And then Jesus is going to go on to remind us that when the Lord calls us home, our worldly possessions will not follow us. We know that, right? It's interesting as we go through this chapter, first he's going to point out that we will leave an inheritance when we go. And then he's going to encourage us to lay up treasures in heaven so that when we get there, there's an inheritance waiting for us. So again, when the Lord calls us home, our worldly possessions will not follow us. They will become the possessions of others. The good news is we won't be here to watch anybody fight over it. Right? Amen? We'll be with Jesus discussing the inheritance that's been laid up for us, the rewards that we've laid up in heaven. So Jesus goes on to tell a story about a man who had lots of money. He had enough grain and to store up and cash in for the rest of his life. And his plan, his plan, kick back, take it easy, live the good life. He said he had great wealth and said to himself, you have a lot of money and possessions. You're set for life. So now eat, drink, and be merry. You've arrived. It's time to kick back. Time to coast. Isn't this the goal of most people in our culture? Right? The goal is to, to arrive in your golden years with as much gold as possible. And I'm not saying it's wrong to save for retirement. I'm saving for retirement. But I think there's so much opportunity can be lost in our older age if we're conformed to the pattern of this world. If a life of leisure and recreation becomes the goal of our lives and there's no involvement in the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus points out in verse 21, the ungodly lay up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. So God said to this man, you fool, since you're going to die this very night, whose will all these things be you provided for yourself? No one will be renting a U-Haul truck and filling it with all their stuff 
to follow the hearse to the gravesite, right? Not going to happen. You can't take it with you. It all ends up in the hands of others. This is why Jesus said multiple times, as in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Being faithful stewards with our finances, I think, includes saving up for our latter days. But when we get there, we should still make it a priority, right? Make it a priority to be serving in the kingdom. Make the kingdom our priority now and then. The kingdom that you are already a part of. Invest in it. Continue to participate in it. Serve Jesus in it. Jesus said, when I, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to his work. We don't want to follow the pattern of this world, kicking back as our bank account grows. Listen to what Paul told Timothy to pass on to wealthy Christians. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. Let them be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation in the age to come, and laying hold on eternal life. The warning that Jesus keeps weaving through this story is keep your life from every form of greed. Because here's the deal. If we love money and possessions more and greed and covetousness begins controlling our heart, the kingdom of God will not be a priority. We can't have both. Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus said, guard your heart. Don't allow your heart to be dominated by the selfish attitude that says, I want mine. I want what I deserve. I want what I'm entitled to. Or, now that I have mine, I'm kicking back. And pleasure is my goal. He said, guard your heart. Jesus addresses, I think, three forms of greed in his message that day. First, there's what I'm calling covetous, covetous greed. Covetous greed is greed that it makes us angry and manipulative. It causes us to use people, a means to our end, believing uh, so that we can get what we believe we're entitled to. This is the attitude of the man who interrupted Jesus. Jesus Tell my brother to give me what I'm entitled to. Demanding Jesus to back his cause and to grant his request. It's covetous greed. Then there is complacent, satisfied greed. It can happen when we reach what they call financial security. And they're saying, people are saying to themselves, I've made it. I've arrived, I have plenty, it's time to kick back, eat, drink, and be merry. Complacent, satisfied greed makes you care less about what really matters. Because it lulls you to sleep and it dulls you to, to spiritual things. Jesus said, guard your heart. 
The third form of greed Jesus will address, uh, will address next is what I'm calling anxious greed. This is the greed that most of the people in the crowd were probably struggling with. Anxious greed. Anxious greed says, what if I don't have enough? What if what I need isn't going to be there? Anxious greed, it wants something it believes it must have. But because of uncertainty, it worries. Notice in verse 22, Jesus then turns to his disciples and he begins with a transitional word, therefore, and we've learned that anytime the word therefore is there, it means that what Jesus is about to say is based upon what just happened and what he was just previously saying. He's been talking about money, possessions, covetous greed, complacent greed. The disciples themselves were, were more like the common people. They had very little. They struggled with discontentment, struggled with anxiety. Some worried day and night if they would ever have enough. Again, Jesus links money, possessions, covetous and covetousness and greed to worry. So he says in verse 24, therefore, do not worry about your life. That you, what you will eat, nor, nor your, about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. So what is he saying? I think he's saying, don't worry about having enough. And I don't think we're much different with the things that we struggle with, with even with the common people of the, that day. I mean, they were poor fishermen and, and farmers and peasants, and I mean, they were day by day wondering if how long their clothes would last, food and clothing, things that we may take for granted, but don't we worry sometimes about having enough? Survey says that people worry mostly about things related to having enough money. People worry mostly about things related to having enough money. Will they have enough to pay for things that they want or the things that they think they need? Will we have enough money to raise a family? Will we have enough money to get our kids through college? Will there ever be enough to buy a house? Will there ever be enough to take a vacation or to retire or pay the medical bills? What is it about money? Money is a, a powerful source of worry because it's, it's like it's always staring us in the faith. You know, whether it's Ben Franklin or it's George Washington, you know, whoever it is, it's like it's always there, is it not? It's like tied to almost everything we do. If money could talk, it would say, here I am. Don't leave home without me. You know, you come home and money's saying goodnight. Money's then waking you up in the middle of the night. You know, they've made songs about money, money, money. It hangs out in the forefront of our thinking. My brothers and I grew up thinking about money all the time. You're like, what? Well, I mean, when we were kids, our parents, they didn't have a lot. They didn't have a lot to give us. But we learned what money could buy. So when we're out shopping with mom, my brothers and I, we were, we're checking all the pay phones for loose change, and we're checking the, the newspaper stands, you know, and some of you did that too, you know. Some of you are going, what's a pay phone? <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> we knew what money could buy, so we, we had money on our minds all the time. And uh, 
I remember one time I found a $5 bill on the floor of a grocery store. It just happened to be at the feet of a little old lady who was looking at spaghetti sauce. So I walked over and picked up the $5 bill, and I said, Ma'am, does, does this belong to you? And she looked at me and said, No, honey, and that made my day. Because <laughs> I had a strong conviction of finder's keepers when I was a kid. Thank you, ma'am, and I ran off, told my mother, Look what I found. But Jesus is saying, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about having enough. Money can't make or break who you are. So don't become anxious. Money is still not your life. There's so much more to who you are. There's so much more to who you are than what you have or don't have. Your money and possessions can't give you identity. They can't give you meaning or real security or the abundant life. If your life isn't made by having more money, then your life can't be unmade by the lack of it. There's something much more important going on in your life than the stuff we worry about. So Jesus makes the connection between money, possessions, covetousness, greed, and worry. In the remaining verses, I like to look at five reasons Jesus gives us not to worry. He lists reasons after reasons why we should not be in the grip of fear and worry over whether or not we will have enough. He gives us the truth that sets us free. I see at least five reasons not to worry in this passage, starting with verse 24 in Luke 12. He says, See how God takes care of the birds and understand that you and I are more valuable than they. Look at verse 24. <clears throat> Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse or barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? So what has God done to remind us not to worry? He says, consider the ravens. Now, if Jesus was giving this message in Kent, he could simply say, look at the crows. Look at the crows. They don't plant, harvest crops. They don't store up grain in barns, but God feeds them. So look at the crows. They live in the moment. God provides for them. They are a constant reminder to all of us that God not only values his creatures, but he created them to represent a worry-free life. A worry-free life because they'll always find plenty to eat. I think God in his wisdom knew that there would be need for a cleanup crew. You think about the crows all over the world, they're scavengers, right? God knew there would be a cleanup crew. There would be roadkill and there would be half-eaten cheeseburgers and fries laying on the side of the road and all the other things, garbage heaps that people leave, you know. So God created a scavenger, a tough, aggressive, noisy, smart bird. Who loves crows? They're a protected species, you know. I know you NRA guys are out there. Okay. They're a protected species, but they'll have plenty to eat. There's always something to eat, and they're so good at finding things to eat everywhere, right? Lowell, you got crows. We need to protect some of our stuff from the crows because they're, they're on it. I was out golfing once, and, um, you know, we're riding along in our golf carts, and 
I had a bag of chips in the golf cart. And so you, get, you, you park the cart, you get out, and you take your shot, and you're gone for a couple minutes. Well, I could come back to no chips. Crows. I find out later this particular golf course is known for the crows who are lurking in the trees watching us golfers. The chips are gone. The peanuts are gone. You don't leave anything in the golf cart. Okay? But pardon the pun, but I think God killed two birds when he made the crows with one stone. He, he accomplished two things at once. He formed a cleanup crew all over the world, and he provided a constant reminder for us, like crows, we can live a life free of worry, because crows never worry. They never worry if they're going to have something to eat. God set it up that way. It represents a life free of worry. And if God put all that thought and planning to make sure the crows had plenty to eat, how much more does he care for you and I? His promise is that you and I are much more important to him than the crows. God feeds the birds, but people matter so much more to God. Why are we so much more valuable than the crows? I hope that the answer is obvious, but we've been created in his image. Amen? People are the most valuable of all God's creation, worthy of sending his son to provide a way of salvation, not deserving, but worthy, created in his image, worthy of his redemption and restoration to that image, which is so marred by sin. Now, a second reason I see that Jesus gives us not to worry is because it doesn't gain us anything. That's good to know, really, if you think about it. We need to know this. Worry doesn't gain us anything. Look at verse 25. And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubic to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? It, your Bible might say, which of you can and add one single hour to his life? Or, or which of you can add a cubic to his span? Take your pick. A cubic is the distance of about 18 inches. You've maybe heard this before. Uh, a measurement they used from your elbow to the, your fingertips is a cubit. Also considered about half a step for some people. And the Bible compares life to a walk. You walk through life, right? You walk, we walk through life step by step. Jesus is saying, you don't even get 18 inches further by worrying. You don't add one step to your life. It doesn't get you anywhere. All the worrying in the world doesn't benefit us, benefit us at all. It doesn't gain us anything. It doesn't change anything. It accomplishes zero. None of us can change anything or gain anything by worrying. I think we worry as if we could control the uncontrollable. You think about it. This, I think, is central to worrying. It's the illusion that we can control things. Anxiety and desire to control becomes like a two-sided coin. We can live with this illusion that if we get it right, we can guarantee the outcome. We can guarantee the future. But if we're trusting in ourselves to be in control and something remains uncertain, then we worry. We obsess over it. We get preoccupied. We get distracted. We lose focus. We lose fo sight of God and what he has promised, and we stop living by faith. 
Worriers act as if they might be able to control the uncontrollable. And this can become anxious greed that wants something it believes it must have. But because it's uncertain, it worries as it strives to attain it. You remember the story of Mary and Martha? Mary was a worrier. Jesus said so. Mary, you're worried about many things. Right? And she got into anxious greed, just like the, the man in our story who said, Jesus, she said, Jesus, tell my sister to help me. Didn't even hear a please in there. Just anxious greed. A common denominator to all the things we can worry about is uncertainty. Because we, we are confined to time and space. And a finite mind. We live in the present. We don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. James had to deal with the businessmen in the church who were living with that illusion, even boasting as if they were in control of the future. Listen to what James says to them. He says, come now, you who say, in James 4, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Ouch. Isn't James, don't you love James? I mean, he's just direct, right? We talked about this in our home group. James just, you know, he's, he's one of those direct kind of people. Just lays it on the line. It's black and white. Do you know people like that? We need some people like that from time to time. Just tell it like it is. James is good at that. We don't know what will happen tomorrow, but we worry with the illusion that we have to control the outcome. And we look to ourselves. Again, a common denominator to all the things we can worry about is uncertainty. The truth is, we cannot foresee how things are going to work out. There's, it's always, there's always a risk, right, from our point of view. From our earthly perspective, there's always a risk. We're never sure. And the truth is, we're in control of very little. Very little. Now, Jesus is leading up to the key to living a worry-free life. The key is living for and investing in that which is certain. That which is guaranteed. That which is promised. That which God is freely giving us and cannot be taken away that which will never lose its value. More on that in a moment. First, or next, I want to go to a third reason Jesus gives us not to worry, found in verse 27. Read, read with me. He says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. <clears throat> they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So Jesus, again, giving us reason after reason to put off worry, he says, consider the wildflowers that are here just for a season. God uses them to clothe the grassy fields. And then he says, will he not clothe you who are so much more valuable? You who are so much more valuable, who was, who was created in God's image, whom he sent his only son to redeem. Have any of you been up to Nachi's Peak on Mount Rainier? 
Okay, you got to go there. Pastor John knows when to go there. He used to lead a youth, a youth group up there every summer. I think it's August. Yeah, August. The most beautiful wildflowers you'll ever see on Nachi's Peak at Mount Rainier. Very easy to do hike, which I love. Easy, okay? Um, beautiful. And we've all seen hillsides covered with beautiful wildflowers. Sometimes right alongside the road, catch our attention. Even in the cracks of the pavement, sometimes. Wildflowers. They make no effort to be beautiful, Jesus said. Yet they're more beautiful than King Solomon in his best royal wardrobe, the richest man who ever lived. Jesus said that's more, that's more beautiful. And if God created wildfires to, wildflowers to beautify the grassy hills for such a short season, Jesus said, will he not provide clothing for those who trust in him, whom he values so much more? If God makes mere wildflowers so glorious that their beauty outdazzles Solomon's, how much more will you and I outdazzle the flowers? So this, is, this promise is far more than God can be trusted to provide me with new genes. It's far more than that. This is saying God will clothe you one day, you and I, with radiant glory. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5 where the apostle writes, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from above. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So Jesus says to the worriers, why do you worry about the clothes you will wear? God says, I will dress you in my own glory. It says, when we see Jesus, we'll be changed into his likeness. This promise goes way beyond this age and the clothes that we need to wear. It's the most spectacular reason not to worry. God is giving us a life that is radiant and indestructible, full of glory. We will dazzle. Amen? If God so adorns the grassy hills and mere wildflowers, they look more glorious than anything Solomon had hanging in his closet. How much more will you and I outdazzle and be radiant like God? It's a spectacular reason not to worry. And notice at the end of verse 28, he says, O you of little faith. Now, this is where the disciples were at at this time. Little faith does not mean no faith. Rather, you can compare it to a flashlight with drained batteries. Okay? It still makes light, but the, light, the light's flickering. The light's wavering. Faith is weak. Or it's like an, don't look too closely, but it's like an atrophied muscle that isn't being exercised. It's weak faith. It's when we lose sight of God and all we can see is what occupies our mind. All we can see is what we're worried about. The uncertainty that we're, we're trying to control the outcome. 
It's when we allow worry to come to life that faith falters. But when faith is exercised, trusting over and over, trusting the Lord with all of our heart, worry goes out the window. When we live by faith, we say goodbye to covetous greed. We say goodbye to complacent greed. We say goodbye to anxious greed. It's a matter of faith. A fourth reason Jesus gives us not to worry, in verse 29, God knows what we, what we need and he's pleased to give us the kingdom. It says, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind, for all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for in it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now this reason is the capstone and really the climax of his argument. In saying that your Father knows what you need, and that it's his pleasure to give you the kingdom, Jesus is exhorting us to have kingdom-mindedness. He's essentially saying, the more you are preoccupied with God's kingdom, the more you set your mind on eternal things, believing God's promise that he will make sure you have enough. But as you get your life about your father's business, you learn to live your life free of worry. Because living for the kingdom of God is not about our control. It's not about uncertainties. It's not about the temporal things we can lose or be stolen from us. The promise, this promise directly meets our tendency toward worry and anxiety. Jesus said, remember your father who knows you intimately, who knows your needs, is gladly giving you the kingdom. He makes it personal, intimate, as generous as possible. He wants us to really understand this and to stake our lives on it because he knows we'll never be disappointed. He invites each and every one of us, leave your anxious fretting and seek my kingdom. Notice he also says, don't be afraid, little flock. Again, speaking to his disciples, but it's the only place in the scriptures where this, these words are found, little flock. Refers to a small flock of sheep. Small enough, the shepherd knows each one by name. He knows their personalities. He knows each one of, un, each one of us individually, personally. He knows our struggles, our situation. Do you ever, do you ever struggle believing that? Sometimes I, I struggle with that. I, I, it's like I can believe God for the big promises that involve all of us in the big picture, but sometimes when it comes to my particular situation, I find myself, again, taking it back and thinking, it's up to me. I've got to figure this out. I've got to get this right. I've got I to control the outcome. And I fall right back into it. But then Psalm 139, he searched me, he knows me, he knows all about me. Right? He knows my thoughts, up, my standing up, sitting down. He knows me personally. And he says to all of us, your father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. So what does it mean? There's much to say about what, what it means to be given the kingdom of God. I think one thing that it obviously means is that your father is God. Our father is God. Amen? It's a profound truth. 
It can rearrange your whole life and what you live for. Your father is God. A woman sat calmly in a lounge chair by the pool as she watched her three-year-old daughter walk from the shallow end of the pool towards the deep end. Three years old. Without fear, the child moved toward the deep end as her mother watched the water rise from her knees to her waist to her shoulders. Her mother continued to watch calmly even though she knew her daughter could not swim. What if she stumbled? She had just learned to walk the other day. Why was fear absent? How could this mother remain so calm as her little girl headed for the deep end? Because right behind the little girl in the pool was her father. Right behind her, with his arms stretched out, inches away, ready to hold her, ready to catch her. She slipped a little bit and hardly noticed that her father balanced her and steadied her. Deuteronomy 33 says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Amen? Your Father is God. What does it mean to be given the kingdom? That, I think, is a whole message in and of itself. It means God is our Father. It means Jesus is our King. But I so appreciated the worship leader mentioning the, the throne. In the kingdom, the throne is a throne of grace, right? And we're invited to come in an assurance of faith. To leave our anxiety behind and make our requests known to him. A fifth and final reason not to worry is so you and I can remain free to love others. Having been freely given the kingdom, our Father calls us to a radical freedom of giving our life away. Look at verse 33 and 34. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourself money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is radical thinking. It leads to a transformed living, unconformed to the pattern of the world. It only comes to the renewing of our minds with this truth. Because we become anxious when we, when we want to get things, because we don't want to lose things, and because we don't want to lose things that we've got, sometimes we kick back with a life of leisure because we've gotten things, but the end of Jesus' message is all about giving. Give. Live to give because you have freely received. In verse 33, uh, he, he rocks their world with this radical statement. He says to the disciples, so sell your possessions, give to charity. Instead of being driven by greed, covetousness, or worry and anxiety, give because you've been given to. The Father who loves you gives you a life that you can give away and you can never lose. He's saying because you've been given a sure thing, the kingdom, there's nothing to worry about. So you can give. Since it's your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom, we can give too. When we get it, we understand that there's good reasons to let our worries go. Instead of becoming obsessed, anxious, we can, we're able to open our hearts and our hands and give. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Jim Elliott, a missionary, 
20th century, I believe. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's awesome. Jesus said, sell your possessions, give alms. So I don't think he's, he isn't giving all Christians this universal command to live without owning anything. But it's a mindset we can develop when our heart is in the right place. This is where we find true freedom and real happiness. It's when we're living with trust in our Heavenly Father, living a life that matters into eternity, that lo loving our neighbor as ourself and giving our life away. Believing that God knows and will provide all that is needed and is giving us the kingdom, we are free from worry and can live for that kingdom. And we can, we can overcome what arises in our hearts. The covetousness, the greed, the desire for more, to control the uncertainty. Giving our lives away, using our gifts, reaching out in love to those around us. Even loving so radically, as we heard a few weeks ago, loving so radically that it demands an answer. Why are you helping me? What is this hope that you have within you? giving every man an answer, letting our light shine so that when they see our good works, they'll glorify our Father who is in heaven. Look again, lastly, at verse 33. He said, it's like having a money belt that doesn't wear out. So you live to give only to be storing up treasure in heaven. It will be there waiting for you, reserved in heaven for you. It's one thing you'll never need, you never need to worry about is your treasure in heaven. Will God be faithful to reward me? I mean, doubts can arise. Will he remember my gifts, my service, my sacrifice? Will my reward be there? Listen to Hebrews 6.10. God is not unjust to forget your work, your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you minister to the saints and do minister. 1 Peter 1 says our inheritance, is, our inheritance in heaven is incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for us. So our faith is anchored in the certainties of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus describes it as money belts that do not wear out. In other words, you can own something that will never get old. It will never wear out or run out. You can possess an unfailing treasure. You can live for and give away something that is inexhaustible. The spring is always flowing. There's nothing or no one that can ever take it away from you. It's a money belt or purse that can never be stolen or lost or worn out or useless. Jesus is saying the best thing that you could ever want, you'll never lose, and you can keep giving it away. The world around us worries about things they want and any day can lose. Jesus said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the title of this message is, What in the world do you have to worry about? The answer, of course, is plenty. Right? There's plenty to worry about. And we could each ask ourselves, what do I worry about most of the time? But I hope you can go beyond to what reasons has Jesus given me not to worry God is fully aware of our inability to see, see the future. He knows we live with uncertainty. We're prone to fear the unknown. 
But Jesus doesn't allow these realities to justify our worrying. He explains our worrying not by pointing out the uncertainty of life, but by pointing to something that's in us. He says, you worry because of you, not because of these things. That's why he said, guard your heart. Every form of greed that arises. Don't allow covetousness and greed to drive your life or to consume your, your thoughts or develop within you an anxious mind. Remember your Father who knows you intimately knows your needs and is gladly giving you the kingdom. He'll provide for everything you need as you live for him. Amen? Would you stand as the worship band comes in? Let's pray. Lord, how we love your word. Your word is truly a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Lord, and we just want to continue to learn the glorious truths of the kingdom of God that you are so freely giving us, how glorious it is, Lord, that if we will invest our lives in the certainties of your kingdom, Lord, we can live without worry, anxiety. Help us, Lord. Help us. Set our minds on things above, eternal perspectives, kingdom-mindedness. Grant us a growing faith to trust you for all things that will be needed. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, I'm Kevin Day, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel South. I really hope you enjoyed the message and that God spoke to your heart through it. If you'd like to know more about our church and find other messages to watch, head over to ccskent.org. And I would love to meet you at one of our Sunday services. God bless you.